You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. It's fair to say that 2017 was a busy year when it came to cybersecurity, and as we head into 2018, there's certainly no sign of things slowing down. Days into the new year, the news of serious vulnerabilities like Meltdown and Spectre, the ongoing threat of ransomware, major data and privacy breaches, and political unrest around the world, well, hold on to your hats, it looks like we may be in for a bumpy ride. In this CyberWire special edition, we've gathered a group of seasoned cybersecurity experts to share their views on what we might expect over the coming year. Nate Beachwestmoreland is head of strategic threat intelligence at Booz Allen Cyber Foresight. Christopher Porter is chief intelligence strategist at FireEye, and Caleb Barlow is vice president of threat intelligence at IBM Security. Stay with us. When we look back at 2017, it seemed that basically every quarter there was really a historic level event that could have really vied for being the hack of the year, quote unquote. That's Nate Beach Westmoreland from Booz Allen's Cyber Foresight team. Whether it was WannaCry or the Triton Trisis malware. We saw you know, these massive global ransomware campaigns, an attack on an industrial control uh, systems, uh, safety systems. We saw allegations flying of all of the usual major national adversaries. Uh, I mean, it was a really busy year in the past year. I think a lot of what we saw in 2017 relates to the predictions that we you know, have made for 2018. That's Christopher Porter from FireEye. Probably the the most notable development to me is that several of the state sponsors have been willing to engage in activities that we traditionally think of as being associated with cybercrime. For example, North Korea going after cryptocurrency exchanges uh, and likewise cybercriminals gaining access to tools that several years ago, if we had seen that during an incident, we would have said, oh, this must be a state actor. So uh, you're seeing a lot more blurring of those lines between uh, state and non-state actors, and that informs a lot of what we think we're going to see going forward into 2018. As we saw in the later half of 2017, you know, ransomware has certainly you know been out there and has certainly been used to mask several attacks like WannaCry and NotPetya. That's Caleb Barlow from IBM Security. But we really think we're going to see ransomware rear its ugly head and start to look at IoT devices. So expect lower ransoms, but also expect things like, you know, just devices to potentially be locked up, someone to force you to pay a ransom to get your data back or unlock your device that may have some kinetic connection. So almost sort of a a nuisance type of ransomware. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, especially when we look at these IoT devices, you know, these things are rarely patched, right? So look, think of something like, you know, a control system in a plant, or even if you go to consumer devices, you know, a nanny camera. Generally speaking, no one's going around and worrying about how they patch and update that. Oftentimes, the software that comes with it when it came out of the box is the same software that's in it when it gets thrown in the trash 10 years later. And that really presents a ripe opportunity for vulnerabilities as well as exploitation. And that's where I think we'll really start to see a rise in, you know, as you put it, nuisance ransomware uh, start to emerge in 2018. There's a couple reasons why we think we'll see, you know, nation state use of ransomware. I mean, on the one hand, there's ransomware as just gathering money, you know, earning, uh, you know, hard currency. Uh, this really only appeals, we think, to a small number of nation states, uh, the sorts that are basically cut out of the loop for uh, traditional financial markets, you know, and so they need to resort to, you know, these uh, alternative means of gaining currency, you know, as well as just other states that are simply strapped for cash and already engage in more traditional uh, sorts of criminal activities, gray area activities, such as, you know, drug running. But the other side of that coin is there are nation states that they, they are certainly not lacking in money, but they would still be interested in using ransomware because, in effect, it's a type of disruptive attack. You know, if you simply throw away the key when you attack someone with ransomware, uh, you get to, you know, essentially brick their systems. And so while we've seen, you know, data destruction attacks going back, you know, for years and years and years, allegedly associated with nation states, ransomware provides a much more plausible cover uh, than simply wiping the, the master boot record, rendering hard drives unreadable. Ransomware now... Uh, nation states get to look like they're cyber criminals and have a degree of uh, uh, plausible deniability. For the last decade, let's say, when there was a major cyber operation, it probably involved one of the major powers. The U.S. hacking someone, China hacking someone, Russia hacking someone, often each other, right? Well, those are countries that have mature, stable diplomatic relations around the world and ways of resolving conflicts uh, that even if they're acrimonious at times, don't devolve into anything worse. There's a way to sort of stop the damage and the blowback from cyber operations. But as these tools start to become more widespread and you've got regional powers that neighbor one another that maybe have fought armed conflicts with one another recently, uh, if they get caught hacking one another, I don't think it's a given that it's going to stay in the cyber box. I think it's much more likely to spill over into armed violence or, or other kinds of responses that we haven't seen from the mature, stable, global cyber powers. So hmm. sort of the, the proliferation of tools naturally, but also the deliberate sharing of training and the spreading of cyber knowledge, offensive cyber capabilities and knowledge. Uh, I think you're going to see that really surprise some people in the way that it's responded to and the, the way it could spiral out of control in some areas. One of the, the biggest assumptions I think a lot of people have when they think about cyber threat is, uh, you know, when we talk about APT groups, advanced persistent threats, um, most folks in the cybersecurity industry, you know, we got into this business because we were interested in the technology, and so they focused on the advanced part. Uh, but really, I, I think in most cases, it's the persistent part that's more dangerous. Hmm. So looking forward into 2018, I, I think we're going to see several things. Uh, one is the spread of the really high-end cyber threat 
groups, the world leaders in terms of tools, techniques, infrastructure, and persistence, their willingness to conduct aggressive activities. We're going to see that not only spread naturally, uh, you often hear people talk about proliferation as though it were a natural occurrence, but being deliberately shared. And the reason for that is uh, being led by the United States and NATO, there's a push to take cyber operations from their origin as sort of being intelligence gathering tools, secretive intelligence gathering tools, and to militarize them. Uh, well, and naturally, if you have uh, military alliances, the U.S. has them around the world, Russia, China, other uh, actors have them with their partners around the world. Uh, military alliances are going to be much more conducive to sharing tools, techniques, uh, lessons learned from successful operations than um, intelligence gathering tools. So the militarization of cyber operations and the fact that that's become more widely accepted and under international laws being treated uh you know, very differently than the intelligence gathering tools that maybe people had assumed it would be in the past. I think we're going to see a lot of those top tier APT groups, their techniques, their tools, uh, some of the overlapping targets get shared with uh, what in the past had been considered second and third tier actors. And the way that'll play out in the private sector is going to be the emergence of more APT groups, APT groups uh, beyond those traditional threat countries, the big players that I talked about but demonstrating that level of skill. We're likely to see a growth in new attacks and threat actors coming out of Africa, largely as a derivative of the fact that the technology growth in Africa is much on the rise, and also this is a rising economy. And well, with that comes local threat actors. So it really represents for us the largest potential for kind of net new impactful cyber events in 2018. And do you see this as being a, a shift towards Africa or a whole new market, if you follow you know, the, the nuance there? I think it's very much of a whole new market, right? It doesn't say that uh, you know, there, there aren't bad guys from other places that are outsourcing their efforts to Africa. Uh, those other criminal entities are likely to still keep on doing what they're doing. But we've got some new actors coming onto the playing field here, if you will. Many of the most damaging cyber attacks were probably responses to sanctions. So countries that had been sanctioned by the U.S., uh, countries that had been isolated um, economically. North Korea is a great example. Uh, they were willing to go after the global financial transaction system, go after major global banks, go after cryptocurrencies. All these things that other countries, other cyber threat groups could have done, but you know, generally passed on doing. Certainly the, the more destructive, disruptive attacks like ransomware other countries are capable of doing and generally have not done as much. And so why is North Korea so willing to do that? And a big part of it is because they've got not much left to lose. They're already isolated. Uh, I think we're going to see that going forward, not only in the countries that are outright sanctioned, but I could imagine, for example, China. Uh, you know, We saw even just recently uh, in the U.S. the CFIUS review turning down acquisition of American companies by would-be Chinese parent companies. Um, you know, Activities like that are going to increase the pressure on state-sponsored cyber threat groups around the world to conduct operations, not just for traditional political military intelligence, but also to support their national economies. Uh, so again, we're seeing those blurring of the lines, not between non-state actors and state actors, but also the purposes for which uh, those activities are being carried out. State actors are carrying out things for more direct economic benefit than they ever have in the past. Uh, China obviously is, is well known as an accused um, intellectual property a thief for a long time, but they've had the Xi-Obama agreement since 2015 to curtail a lot of that activity, and it's been very successful. 
Uh, if we see growing tensions between Washington and Beijing over economic and trade issues, could some of that come back? Those are the kinds of issues that we're warning our clients about. First of all, you have these you know, certain pariah states that are being cut out of the international markets for a variety of reasons. And so they're seeking these alternative means of gaining uh, financial resources. Allegedly, North Korea has been a you know, really the leader of the pack uh, when it comes to this sort of activity. And this has allegedly encompassed targeting cryptocurrency exchanges, distributing mining malware, uh, targeting professionals involved in the cryptocurrency industry uh, in order to gain access to their computers and networks. The other reason is national control. Uh, so what we've seen are several countries have publicly announced, like Russia and China, that they are considering having their own national cryptocurrencies, you know, the digital renminbi, the digital ruble. Part of that we see is form of uh, essentially power and control. You know, these countries are well known for their issues of currency flight uh, with leaders in their country making a lot of money and perhaps taking it out of the country. And you know, those nations would want to have that money stay in the country. And if you're using a cryptocurrency that's managed by a given country, you can keep that money safe and inside and not in dollars that can be used globally. So in a sense, sanction busting, you know, you have this currency that you can control and no one else in the rest of the world could mess with. You know, you have your own form of secure currency. Information sovereignty, uh, the idea that this has been battled over at the UN for years, but the idea that national sovereignty and sovereignty over one's internal affairs, it, you know, extends to the information sphere, extends to what information comes in and out by, via the news media or, you know, obviously via uh, the internet. It's traditionally been the big powers that fought over those issues and that, you know, rubbed each other the wrong way and uh, that led to media conflicts. Well, what happens when the second and third tier cyber powers also have the same issues? Are they going to be hacking one another's media companies? Are they going to be running their own information operations campaigns? I think the sort of activities that, that we've seen, the political interference and others that we've seen from the major global powers, I think you'll start to see more countries doing that as a normal means of their international relations. So, uh, all of that is is uh, very destabilizing, potentially. Uh, it doesn't say a whole lot about what tools and techniques will be used, but uh, I think the most important thing is going to be what are the sponsors of those cyber threat groups going to be asking their hackers to do for their countries uh, because of the turbulent political times we live in, because of uh, increased economic pressures. I think you're going to see those state-level national resources be more and more used that way. In the West... Uh, and threat groups around the world, everyone's going to be doing this uh, in the not-too-distant future. When we look at 2018, we're likely to see a rise in attacks where the cyber criminals are actually using machine learning to spoof human behaviors. Uh, much like the cybersecurity industry has been using artificial intelligence to try to find the bad guys, the bad guys are also using AI to figure out where we're vulnerable. So in an interesting game of cat and mouse, this is going to be a little bit of AI versus AI in 2018. And is that uh, the, the availability of these tools have become cost effective? Well, it's cost effective. They're pervasive. But also, you know, these tools give you the ability to spread a kind of broader net as an attacker and try to find a way in. 
What do you suppose the effect of uh, GDPR coming online this May is going to have on the global um, security world? Sure. Yeah. There's GDPR. There's, I mean, there's there's other regulations as well. You know, New York uh, Department of Financial Services have regulations that are going into effect that, mm. um, in the U.S. anyway, will have a significant impact as well. GDPR, obviously, the biggest and most important breach. You got 72 hours to to give notice. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out in practice. Certainly, I think the increasing regulation um, because it'll increase confidence and decrease ambiguity. Those are all good things for enterprises. Um, nobody likes regulation, but also people don't like having no rules at all either. So I think a lot of this is going to be very positive for cybersecurity. If for no other reason, then it'll give a clear incentive. You know, on the margin, there are companies, you know, we, we tend to think about the, the laggards that are not doing notifications well and they're not doing cybersecurity well. You know, there's always the, the possibility that some of those companies that actually have been very good and very forward-leaning could regress to a mean and take on a more compliance mindset. So that's something we want to fight against. The vast majority of companies, obviously, are going to be more uh, concerned about meeting GDPR notification requirements and, you know, can they can they host their data uh, appropriately for local laws. From a threat perspective, that gives you several different things. One is that, you know, many of the best APT groups, many of the, the best, most threatening groups, one of their big advantages is that they can prepare and in advance, they can they can choose the time and place of their engagement in cyberspace, uh, and they can move very fast once they're inside the network and between different companies. So having those quick notifications, yes, it's good for customers. Yes, it's good for organizations to have clarity on the rules. It'll increase pressure on some of those cyber threat groups because if they breach one company, and you know, but there were 10 that they were targeting, they're going to have to think about, well, now how does this notification affect uh, the defender's ability to coordinate, the ability you know, the defender's ability to share information between different vendors and between different companies. So those are positive developments generally having those regulations on the books. Well, there's certainly a lot of desire in various communities for policy and regulation. Um, I think the, the challenge we have to recognize is that even with policy and regulation, you know, the a check on a device, the certification stamp is only really as good as the moment at which it was certified. Uh, you know, I think we've all learned that new vulnerabilities can appear at any time in a system. And what we really need to do is move to a model where anything that connects to the Internet has to have a way to update itself at any time over the wire. It's really that simple. Now, that may sound simple, but now when we talk about IoT, that sounds really complicated. I mean, you know, when you go buy a used car now, and this is actually something you kind of have to do today, you go buy a used car. It isn't just go get the oil changed and have your mechanic check it out. You also need to update the software and change all the passwords on that car. I mean, how many people thought of that historically when they went and bought a new car? You know, I I've, have seen improvements in the sense of a lot of really active information sharing communities amongst uh, professionals out there. I've seen lots of effort to, you know, to try to dial down some of the rhetoric uh, within the community whenever we, you know, find potential nation state activity. So for example, you know, I saw a report that came out this year you know, that deliberately withheld uh, information to uh, the Trisis Triton attack uh, that, you know, it wouldn't have helped defenders, but it would have really, you know, thrown the whole discussion into a much less nuanced national adversary discussion. I think in the United States anyway, we, we tend to define critical uh, industries. We tend, we tend to have a list of these are the industries that are critical and 
I think to some degree, everybody else is kind of left to fend for themselves when there's major cyber attacks in terms of the government response. I wouldn't say that it's not getting attention from other people, but in particular going forward, if, if economic competition among states returns to being a little more cutthroat and, they, and people using state-level resources to do it, I think you're going to have to have much better uh, coordination and cooperation between the private sector and the government, even among the industries that are not in those critical industries lists. It's, it's great, and there's obviously a lot of work to be done to protect critical infrastructure, uh, but I think you want to make sure that it's casting a wider net for cooperation. Uh, that's something that I've, you know, that, that I bring up in every meeting that I that I can is that it it needs to be more focused on national level efforts, international efforts to coordinate and share information uh, as quickly as possible. Speed's the key, um, and you don't really care if the who is breached as a retailer or uh, you know the energy sector. Obviously, there there are differences in terms of the damage that can be caused and the systemic damage and the types of malware that might be used and so forth. There are many differences, but there's more similarities uh, in terms of the back-end uh, infrastructure and who's doing it and why and so forth. So um, just making sure that we don't forget that most industries fall outside of the critical infrastructure, critical industries lists, uh, and that they need defending too, and that they can contribute to security even of those critical industries uh, because, you know, who knows? They might be the first ones who are breached or that see a certain piece of malware. Uh, so being more adversary focused, less focused on siloed industries, uh, that's a big one for me. You know, if we look at identity, we've had over 2 billion records stolen in 2017. And this is a scale like we've never seen before. Um, you know, if we go back to the healthcare breaches of 2015, where most of us lost our healthcare records, of course, then we bring in 2017. And most of us also lost things like our social security number and other forms of immutable data that might be used to establish credit, and things like that. And of course, the challenge in all of this is that we as a society have been using things like social security numbers, dates of birth, mother's maiden name. This is what we call immutable data. You can't change it. Well, we really shouldn't be using these things for both identity and access. We should really only be using them for identity, you know, to tell that, hey, I'm the John Smith that lives on High Street versus the John Smith that lives on Oak Street. But using them to actually also establish access in a system is really something we shouldn't be doing anymore. And I think the reality is we might as well just publish our Social Security numbers because guess what? The bad guys kind of already have them. Do you think we'll see solutions in this coming year that will uh, reduce some of the friction for people to be able to use some of these multi-factor systems? I do. And, you know, in fact, I think in many ways these things are already here. I mean, inside of my own corporation, uh, we use two-factor for most everything. It's simple and painless, I think, in a lot of kind of robust online communities, uh, certainly a lot of the major social networks now, you see two-factor authentication. And it's not easy, and it provides a, an extra level of protection. And I'll tell you what. I'd much rather be occasionally putting in an extra password from my phone than trying to remember a 16-digit password with upper, lowercase letters, special characters, and everything else that people are asking you for nowadays. Do you think we'll see any, any shifts in terms of a political will to come at some of these problems from a policy point of view? Well, I don't think we have a choice, because at the end of the day, if all of our identities are out there and all these forms of immutable data are out there, and people are still using them as a form of access, then we're gonna see the rates in fraud rise dramatically. So whether we wanna see it or not from a political point of view, we are certainly gonna see a drive towards it from an economic point of view. You know, remember, we talk a lot about 
you know, nation state activity and all that's all the stuff that makes the news. But this is a $445 billion annual problem when we talk about this from the segment of organized crime. Now, put that in perspective, that's larger than the GDP of a lot of countries like, oh, let's say Ireland. It's true that a lot of the stuff we look out for is the same stuff we've been looking out for for the past 20 years, you know, we're going to see a tremendous amount of social engineering. We're going to see phishing. We're going to see Word documents with malicious macros. And the reason we keep seeing all these things is because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, but, you know, in terms of stuff that's coming over the horizon in the next year, vulnerabilities like Spectre and Meltdown uh, could ultimately degrade customer expectations of virtual machine instances, uh, you know, that they can be, in fact, truly isolated from the hardware they're running on. So uh, essentially, this could drive some organizations to rethink their growing reliance on cloud services uh, that, I mean, really what these attacks showed was the risk was that someone else could be existing on these cloud services and see, you know, what other processes were going on, what data was being expo was exposing the data of other customers on cloud services. So one response you might see is a wish to draw back within the castle walls. I think what we, we can expect to see are several types of uh, innovations on existing attack. For example, in our report, one of the things that we uh, call out are uh, attacks on software updates, uh, the supply chain of software updates. So we, we, we saw some significant attacks in the past year, be it the NotPetya incident with the Ukrainian tax software or the CC Cleaner uh, update incident. We think that while we've seen malicious software updates for, for years, going back to you know the at least the 2000s, we think that the publicity globally that these uh, incidents received uh, will end up drawing a lot more adversaries into this space. So we're imagining that in the coming year, we will see just greater interest by nation states and cyber criminals at trojanizing these software updates, be it for ransomware, be it for cryptocurrency mining. So that's one of those major trends we expect to see in the next year. Yeah, if you had advice for someone to uh, to change something that they did in 2017 for 2018 to update something or or do something better, what, what would your advice be? Well, I think there's two things that people have to do that they probably haven't thought of before as we go into 2018. The first and foremost is we've really got to get an inventory of what systems and devices do we have uh, in our networks and in our corporations or even in our house. You know, historically, we really didn't worry about all the devices that might be connected to the network. You know, as we move into 2018, we're likely to see the scenarios where we not only need to update, you know, kind of patch our Windows and Apple systems and our phones, but also need to patch IoT devices and patch hardware. And that's something we're not used to doing. Uh, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing I think people have to do as they go into next year they probably haven't done is they need to truly, really rehearse an incident. Because, you know, we refer to this as left of boom and right of boom, right? So if, if boom is an explosion in this case, it's, <laughs> you know, when you become aware of that breach, right? Everything left of it is preparing for it and getting ready. Everything right of it is dealing with the aftermath and ensuring resiliency. 
Well, almost all of our time, thought, and investment to this date as an industry has gone into the left of boom activities, the before we know about the breach. It's time to go spend some time on right of boom and really understand when the breach does occur, is unfortunately somewhat inevitable. How are we going to respond? How are we going to react? And what decisions are we going to make? I think that uh, having war gaming is really important if you're a large organization. Uh, you're considering, you know, how would we respond if we had, you know, ransomware that infected our network? How would we respond to a sudden loss of uh, the power grid in Ukraine? So war gaming that out. Also, uh, really focusing on uh, just documentation so that you have like a playbook of how you respond to these sorts of problems. You know, I think it's always safe to assume that you have been breached or that you will be breached. Uh, there's, there's no reason to think that just because you have some level of expertise uh, that, they, you know, that somebody couldn't steal something from you or cause damage to a system and so forth. So having that mindset of, you know, I've already been breached or I could be breached if the adversaries wanted to, uh, I think that's very important. Can you go in and can you, can you pick out what information is most important to your organization? Do you, do you know where your valuables are, essentially? Uh, I think that's going to be the key. So if you assume that you've already been breached and you don't necessarily know where it is, and for example, um, you know, your organization is moving uh, a lot of your valuable data to the cloud, to a cloud service provider, well, you know, at FireEye, 80 to 85% of our customers are moving some of their key data to the cloud. That has many upsides for security. Um, one of the potential downsides, though, is that between the transfer from on-prem to cloud, I think there's an institutional tendency to sort of assume that it's all over there somewhere, wherever over there is, and not to think as much about where exactly logically uh, data is being protected and defended and what controls. There's so many controls to configure. What controls apply to which bucket of data? In some ways, that's uh, not that it's easier, but you're forced to do it when you're on-prem and you're not forced to do it because it's so convenient when it's in the cloud. Hmm. Um, so having a good inventory of where your truly vital either data or truly vital operations is usually easier, but the truly vital data, where it's at when you're putting it in the cloud, what controls are there, what's logged, um, I think that's something that uh, people tend to overlook. And that's uh, you know that's kind of obvious advice for a lot of people, but it's still also a very common cause of problems. So uh, even if you think you've done it, assume that you've messed up somewhere and go find it, go, you know, go red team yourself, that kind of a thing. The name of the game in cybersecurity is really risk management. You know, you need to understand what is the threat and what is our mitigation to it? And is that an acceptable level of risk we are willing to take on? So you have to, you know, make sure that you have the processes in place in order to both, you know, to really make that equation and uh, calculate it. And if there's just a theme to all these things I've just been laying out, it's relentless preparation. Imagine that there's, you know, there's always something coming down the pike, you know, making sure that you just don't take the mentality that, you know, we, we completed the audit last year, we checked all the boxes, we're good. No, you have to be constantly evolving, preparing, and understanding what's coming over the horizon in order to manage your risk. And that's our CyberWire special edition looking ahead to 2018. Our thanks to Nate Beach Westmoreland, Christopher Porter, and Caleb Barlow for joining us. 
We're excited to be featuring original music in this special edition podcast from local artist Ben Hobby. If you like what you hear, you can check out more of his stuff on Twitter, where he is at Ben Hobby. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, social media editor Jennifer Ivan, technical editor Chris Russell, executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.